Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host, and I'm here in wonderful company as we are recording in front of a live audience at the Christian Science Plaza in Boston. Passersby will be looking in, for we are about to discuss the career of Erwin D. Canham the longest-serving editor of the Christian Science Monitor. He was editor of the paper from 1941 to 1964, and then served as editor-in-chief from 1964 to 1974. Canham's times were epic in their scope. He was editor of the Monitor during World War II, during post-war, reconstruction, and decolonization, the Cold War, the Civil Rights Movement, and the social revolutions of the 1960s. Canham was not only a distinguished editor, but he was a public figure of great renown. He was heavily involved in numerous educational, professional, as well as political organizations. Just to name a couple examples, he was a delegate to the United Nations General Assembly in 1949 and was part of a panel that helped to mediate a riot at the Charlestown State Prison in Massachusetts, where prisoners had taken hostages. Our conversation today will also look at the magnitude of our collections on Canon, which we are in the process of opening through the Mary Baker Eddy Library archives. This collection helps to tell not only Canon's story, but the story of the Christian Science Monitor, the new source that Mary Baker Eddy founded in 1908 with the objective to injure no man, but to bless all mankind. This collection brings us into the world-changing events that Canham engaged with as a journalist and public figure. So I'm very happy to introduce to you our guest speakers. First is Alison Kuberski, manager of records management at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Welcome, Alison. Thanks for having me. Alison, thank you for being here so we can better understand what it means to open a collection as vast and as varied as Canham's. Also with us is Charlotte Lellman. Charlotte is processing archivist of the Canham collection. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you, Jonathan. Charlotte, you've come to know Canham as only a family member, close colleague, or an archivist can. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's great to have you. Also with us is Clay Jones, chief editorial writer of the Christian Science Monitor. Welcome, Clay. Thank you. So, Clay, in, in early times, you had a few moments to connect, I understand, with Erwin Kennedy. Yeah, I, I did. He was in the newsroom when I first started working at the Monitor, and he was my Sunday school teacher. I was also blessed to work for the editor before him, Roscoe Drummond, who was a columnist in Washington for a long time. Wow. It's hard to believe. You, you don't look old enough for that. <laughs> <laughs> for that to be true. So, Clay, Allison, and Charlotte... And listeners, I thought we'd start the program by playing a clip of Canham from a popular radio program called The Christian Science Monitor Views the News. In it, you'll get a sense for Canham as a journalist and thought leader and as a public figure. We'll hear Canham discussing his attendance at the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty and also his presence as part of the United States delegation at the United Nations, which was then located in Flushing Meadows in New York City. So let's play that clip. Coast to coast and by shortwave overseas, 
an international daily newspaper, the Christian Science Monitor, views the news. And now here's the Monitor's editor, Erwin Canham, your commentator, speaking from New York. This is a week of genuinely historical significance. Yesterday and today, I was able to participate in two of these historic events from behind the scenes, and I want to tell you about them tonight. Yesterday, I sat ten feet from the table where the North Atlantic Treaty was signed. Today, as a member of the United States delegation, I took part in the opening of the United Nations Assembly. These two events deserve to be linked together, for they must be seen as part of the same effort, the effort to achieve peace. The hope of the world is that the Atlantic Treaty will warn a possible aggressor, as aggressors were not warned in 1914 and 1939, that the path of aggression is suicidal. Faced by the greatest peacetime aggregation of strength the world has yet seen, it is to be hoped, yes, it may even be calculated, that the Soviet Union may decide the time has come to reach a genuinely peaceful agreement with the West. I do not believe Russia will be ready for such an agreement until the pact has been ratified by the American Senate and until it has been implemented, to some degree at least, by the rearmament of Western Europe. But yesterday's event in Washington was the first step. When and if the other steps follow, we may see that this spring of 1949 has been the real beginning at last of the peacemaking. It may then be possible to turn this United Nations into a constructive instrument for adjusting and enforcing peace instead of a mere debating society. The Atlantic Treaty may be the step which will permit the UN at last to become effective. So Clay, when you listen to that, what does it tell you about what was going on in the world of journalism for someone like Canham in this period of uh, spring of 1949? There are several things to listen to in that, in that clip. One is his hope that the United Nations will not go the way of the League of Nations and Mr. Canham did cover the League of Nations as a cub reporter in mm -hmm. 1929. So he saw how that collapsed. And here in this clip, he's talking about his hope for the United Nations. The other thing to notice in that clip is, is how much he welcomes the Soviet Union to seek peace. So as he's asserting kind of the threat out there, or seeing the threat out there, at the same time, he's using words like peace, hope, constructive actions and so forth. So he's not demonizing the Soviet Union. He's sort of welcomed them into, the, into humanity and into the United Nations. And he's right at that cusp of the Cold War in 1949, so he doesn't know what the future holds. He's identifying the higher ideals at work in these two events, the founding of NATO and the founding of the United Nations. So Charlotte, in thinking about the collection that you've gotten to be so intimately acquainted with, what's in it generally, and then what's in it that reflects what Clay was just talking about? So the collection is very large. We have a lot of records from Canham's work at the Monitor, so we've got about 360 boxes originally, and um, I've been approaching them piece by piece to figure out what there is, and we've got a lot of correspondence. That's the bulk of the collection. So Canham's correspondence with readers and staff members, and other just members of the public. We have Canham's speeches, notes, photographs, unusual objects, books. <laughs> it's a very broad collection. It shows us Canham behind the scenes. So here we have Canham in this radio clip speaking publicly and in a, in a very polished way. But this collection gives us access to the aspects that weren't so public, his behind the scenes 
notes and his um, discussions with staff about what they were going to present in the monitor. It gives us some insights into his politics and his attitudes towards um, things like NATO, like he was expressing in this, in this clip. It also shows us a little bit about his earlier life. For example, we have a scrapbook from his time in college. Uh, Canham grew up in Maine, and his father worked for a newspaper. And when Canham went to college, he became a debater. And in his scrapbook, he pasted a photo of himself that appeared in the Christian Science Monitor in 1922 mm. for a debate with Oxford University. And so, at a young age, he was engaging with international problems, and he was very serious and cared about, about world issues that led him to his career at the Monitor. Well, let's hear a little bit more from that broadcast. I will not bore you with a mere description of either of these historic scenes. In Washington, there was an air of resolution and of hope. There were also undercurrents of uncertainty. There was doubt about the timing of senatorial ratification. Some feel that months may intervene before the Senate acts, although overwhelming approval of the pact itself is expected. There was doubt about the amount of rearmament aid that may be forthcoming. And there was doubt about the Russian reaction. That same doubt hung in the air at Flushing Meadows this afternoon. But there was no Russian explosion at the sessions today. In this assembly, almost as much as at the Atlantic Pact signing itself, you feel how very isolated the Russians have become in today's world. Apart from their satellites, they have no followers, no confidants, no like-minded nations. Their hand is against all men. But this is of their own doing, and it can be undone by them once they have decided that the West is too strong and that they must make peace. That is the point toward which Western policy is now striving. There is a third historic event this week. It is the talks now going on in Washington and New York between the British and French foreign ministers and the American Secretary of State seeking agreement on the organization of Germany. There must be a similar agreement on the Italian colonies here at the assembly. The West must prove its capacity to solve its own problems before it presents a united front to Russia. And of comparable significance in Washington is the decision the Senate must take soon, perhaps this week, about the extension of the European recovery program. All these events are pouring in on us. They have produced an atmosphere which is at once challenging and also surcharged with hope. Surcharged with hope. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, um, that concept. How, Clay, does, do those remarks exemplify core values about the Christian science? Well, you'll knowledge? notice when just talking about the Soviet Union again, he's, he's almost appealing to the conscience of the Soviet Union. And he wanted to monitor articles to deal with individual consciousness, no matter who it is. And that would help the monitor stand out. And that by doing that, you would then see the universal values at work. And so this event talks about the universal values that the UN represented, how NATO was responding to threat and so forth. But that surcharged hope is a sense of, it, we can all work in this together to get past this these frictions. I just want to say one thing. His voice there is very much like the Wizard of Oz, and I just want to tell... <laughs> I'm going to give another side of Mr. Canham. Okay. There's the apocryphal story. I was not there. An important visitor sat down in the office and said, do you mind if I smoke? And Mr. Cannon paused and said, well, you can, but you'll be the first person who does it here. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, cigar the cigarette stayed away. <laughs> yeah. So... Allison, 
As manager of records management at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, what is the backstory of this collection? Why, why we have it? Why is it so big? <laughs> and um, does that keep you up at night at all? <laughs> it does not keep me up at night. Um, Charlotte, maybe, but not me. <laughs> um, so, as Charlotte mentioned, we started with 360 boxes that were identified as canons. That is not necessarily 360 boxes of materials that belonged to Canem. We found that some things have been misidentified as his, so it might have been that because they were from later editors, they were stored in the same place, and when someone was doing some cleaning later, just assumed they all belonged together. We also have some materials that Canem did have, but we are returning to other organizations. Um, he was very involved with local groups and national groups. He was a member of the Bates College Board of Trustees. He was on the selection committee for Rhodes Scholars and also the Pulitzer Prize at one time. So we have a lot of, or we have found a lot of materials that are from his time on those boards, and they really belong with those other organizations. And we've even been able to fill some gaps in these other groups' histories, which is nice. So we think in the end it'll be about maybe 200-something boxes total, which is still a lot. And as far as the significance of it, it is one of the most complete collections of materials that you would be able to find of an editor for the monitor, mostly because there was no weeding that happened. So now, you know, you might throw out an invitation for events that you didn't attend. Kenham kept all of that. Mm. Um, <laughs> so we have his correspondence, like declining invitations. Um, we have his travel arrangements. And so it really provides an interesting, complete picture of what the day-to-day -day life of a newspaper editor was in the mid-20th century, which is really great. Erwin Kenham was also extremely dedicated to the Christian Science Church. And, Clay, it might be helpful if you could explain the distinction between when he was editor of the Monitor, which was from 1941 to 1964, and then when he served as editor-in-chief in, in mm -hmm. from 64 to 1974, because it seemed during that period he assumed a bit more of that role of being a representative of the church as well as of the, the monitor. Right. He had become such a public figure in the 1950s that even though he stopped being full-time editor in 64, he was a valuable public figure from then on and, and just broadened, even broadened more what he was doing. And I think it was valuable for people like me at the time to, to have that touchstone back to the 1950s when the monitor really was at its peak of fame when journalism itself was very strong. You had the post-World War II generation which went to college and wanted a higher level of, of quality newspaper. More newspapers moved into the type of journalism the Monitor had been doing, analytical news. And the key event was 1962, if I remember right, when Huntley and Brinkley show began and people began to get their news of the day from TV. So newspapers had to then shift to doing more analytical work uh, because America had become kind of the global leader. More newspapers did foreign news, which the Monitor had done well. And so journalism began to shift during that 1960s period. And Canham, 
in his later years, tried to broaden the Monitor's reach to different audiences. During this period, when he was editor in chief of the Christian Science Monitor, for a year he also held the position in 1966 of president of the Mother Church, of the First Church of Christ Scientists. And 1966 was an important anniversary for the Christian Science Church because it was 100 years、uh, since the discovery by Mary Baker Eddy of Christian Science. So in 1966, he gave a very important talk、uh, that was titled "The Spiritual Revolution." He describes himself in that speech as a journalist, and he says of himself, "Quote." My lifelong task has been to observe and to strive to interpret the significance of these times. So let's listen to a short sample from the talk. Nowadays, I think it wouldn't be an exaggeration or a misstatement to say that of all the changes which have taken place in our time, none is greater nor more significant than the mere fact of the amount of material knowledge. Which we have assessed the stockpile which we have built up. However, along with it has come in this century the awareness, which was not present in the 19th century, that we have a great deal still to learn. In the 19th century, the typical natural scientist thought that just about everything had been discovered. It's a little unfair to dig up quotations from scientists in the 19th century, but it's important to realize that how. Narrow men's concepts can sometimes be, and it, you might call the 19th century the know-it-all century, with less reason、uh, than、uh, today. And so, one of the most heartening, and perhaps one of the most important of all the ideas and the attitudes of today, is the fact that we now know how much we don't know. Charles Kettering, the、uh, great inventor and、uh, industrialist. Put this in rather nice terms when he said, "We have to date chipped away only a few fragments from the mountain of knowledge, fragments that have changed our entire way of life, but looming ahead of us, practically intact, lies a huge mass of fundamental facts, any one of which, if uncovered, could change our civilization." This sort of humility is the best kind of attitude for us to retain as we go forward in our encounter with the material universe. So, Clay, in, in listening to that,、uh, it, it seems that he's suggesting that the task of journalism is very, very huge at this point because he is recognizing how much we don't know and how big a journey lies ahead of us. He spoke this in 1966, which was just when things were really changing in the United States in a radical way. He called this talk a spiritual revolution. So he realized that, and while there were still things to discover materially, that there was a, an awakening of thought happening. So he sees change happening rapidly, and wants us to dig deeper into that. And what the rest of the clip deals a lot with the. Recognition that the Monitor is somewhat unique in the history of journalism in acknowledging a spiritual reality at work in the human consciousness, and part of the Monitor's role 
is to report on that spiritual reality as it's, it emerges and to listen for it and to have the humility to see whether it's in scientific discoveries or uh, political developments. And that's a lot of the, the thrust of that particular talk. In, and my hope in the collection is that we understand better how he helped the staff bring out that special skill that the Monitor has of seeing spirituality at work in the news. Mm. Well, Kenham certainly was interested in the Christian science origins of the Monitor, and of course, continuing through, through today, of course. But um, he wrote um, Commitment to Freedom, the history of the Christian science Monitor, and we have the records that he used to research this book. And so it's certainly true that he was keenly aware of the sort of founding mission of the Monitor, and that was really a guiding force for him. So Charlotte, um, what can Clay do to research the collection, and what can others do at this yeah. point? So the collection is in the process of being opened, so it's a big project that will take multiple years. But as the records are opened, um, researchers will be able to read Canham's correspondence and read his speeches and his notes and all these other sorts of records that we have. And I think one of the most interesting sources that I've found for learning Canham's understanding of the relationship between politics and journalism and Christian science is in his correspondence with Christian science readers who wrote to him from different perspectives as Christian scientists to ask about different monitor editorial policies to say, does this correspond with the values of the monitor? Would Mary Baker Eddy have supported this? And sometimes two people writing from opposite perspectives about the same, about the same question, agreeing or disagreeing. And I think those questions gave Canham the opportunity to sort of respond as a Christian scientist and wrestle with it in a sort of spiritual sense. And it's also important to note that while, yes, this is a multi-year process, that doesn't mean that if you have a specific question now, you can't ask it. Um, the research staff is always happy to take a stab at whatever questions you might have. Well, speaking of questions, we'd love to hear if, if any of you who are with us as part of our live audience have any questions or have any thoughts you'd like to share. And now for part two of this Seekers and Scholars episode on the papers of Erwin D. Canham, editor of the Christian Science Monitor and National Figure. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. Let's rejoin Alison Kabersky, Manager of Records Management at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, Charlotte Lellman, Processing Archivist of the Canham Collection, and Clay Jones, Chief Editorial Writer at the Christian Science Monitor as they engage with questions from a live audience for this recording. Allison, can you tell us a little bit more about how this collection came to be held by the Mary Baker Eddy Library? Was it destined there from the start, or did it have a circuitous route to us? Um, more of the second. Um, we haven't been able to find really clear documentation about how we ended up with it. Uh, a lot of the material was from Canham's time at the Monitor, which makes it business records of the church, and so it makes sense that they were here. Uh, as far as the involvement with his, the outside organizations and some of his more personal correspondence, we're not entirely sure how we ended up with it. He had contemplated giving it to the Library of Congress at one point, and I believe Stanford actually was interested in acquiring it as well, but he felt that the church was the right place 
for his records to be. So I'm curious, did Mr. Canham serve as a foreign correspondent ever for the Monitor? And then also, what happened with foreign bureaus during his watch? Did, did they rely on foreign bureaus, or did the Monitor reply more on freelancers, or what was going on then? I, I know he did cover the uh, League of Nations opening in Geneva in 1929, and I, I remember seeing a picture of the London Bureau, which was really the European Bureau in the late 30s, there were, I think, something like 37 people in the London Bureau. Uh, I don't know if he was there at the time. Um, but as far as I know, there were many foreign bureaus. Yeah, there, was, there were certainly many foreign bureaus. Um, there was the European Bureau, which was also at certain times, the London office and something else. I was talking to Allison about how the bureaus change names a lot, and it's really confusing to keep track of. There's the Australia office that was also at one time the Australasia Bureau. You spoke about Erwin Canham's editorship at a time of Monitor having a lot of influence and impact. What would you say overall is the impact of the Monitor on American journalism more broadly? The Monitor was founded in part in 1908 to uplift the standards of journalism. And just soon after that, uh, American newspapers actually set up a code of ethics. And journalists began to self-reform in a way. And I think more and more news organizations became more like the Monitor over time in being analytical, uh, more neutral, fair, objective, and so forth. So in a way, that task was pretty much done. Obviously, there's still a lot of cleanup in journalism to go on, but I would say the Monitor's influence in elevating thought beyond the human or material construction of, let's say, the nation-state, or conflict between the nation-state, or just covering institutions. And that there's, Cannon often talks about individual consciousness. He likes to emphasize self-discipline. He seems to always be talking to uh, the individual and what they can do, and so forth. And I think those kind of ideas have been infused a lot into journalism. And I do think a lot more journalists are dealing with universal values than in the past. In that last clip about having that humility of listening for more changes, the Monitor represents, we're constantly changing, and so should other newspapers in reacting to current events. I have to say, Cannon was a, both a person of his times, but also somebody who changed his times. And I think in going through the collection, we should make sure that we're we're not getting stuck in, I mean, some things should probably stay with those times, and then there's the stuff that we should learn from and use today. And that's kind of, if I was going through the collection, that's how I would look at the collection that way. I think it's also important to recognize that Canham was really influential in the world of journalism outside of the Monitor. He was the president of the American Society of Newspaper Editors, uh, I believe in 1949, and he was really involved in these post-World War II efforts to um, inspire freedom of information. So he was involved in American and international news organizations, some of which were just starting up and coming together after World War II. Those efforts continued well beyond World War II, even into the later part of his career. He was involved in these efforts in other parts of the world, outside Europe and the Americas, to make sure that independent journalism was a truth that could exist worldwide. I know that Various editors, uh, ranging from Archibald McLennan 
to Frederick Dixon, to Roscoe Drummond, up through Canham, there was there was an evolving interpretation of how do we how do we understand the monitor's purpose and mission? What do you think Canham brought to that understanding, and how did that evolve by by the time he took office? I can't say I know enough about that. Um, I know that Roscoe Drummond really dealt with that in the 1930s. Uh, the church was coming out of a particularly troublesome period in the 1920s during the Depression. And the monitor was changing in the 30s, I think, as much as it was today. So I think the search for a deeper spiritual meaning to the monitor's coverage started in the 1930s. Um, if you listen to Canham's talks, I know he's always searching to, and opening that idea that the monitor is dealing with spiritual reality. And I can just tell you from the people that he hired and trained in the 40s and 50s that I knew did bring that type of thinking. And I attribute that to, to Canham. I'd like to ask about uh, Canham's talk. It, is that available in print to the public? I believe it is. We have a lot of Canham's writings and speeches, and I believe we have the spiritual revolution. So if you're interested in that, you could um, email research at mbelibrary.org, and um, they can provide you with more information. From what you know about Mr. Canham, what do you think he would be most proud of in the Monitor today, and what might he be critical of? Well, I would, I would assume he would say we, we should have more foreign bureaus than, than he did in his day. I would think he'd be proud of the agility and diligence and insight we're bringing to the challenge of, challenges to journalism today. We're having to innovate drastically over the last 25 years as we've been thrown one curve after another by the effects of the digital age in terms of the means of production and the distribution and, and the trends in the readership, on and on. It's not just the internet, we also had influx of competition from other newspapers in the 60s, doing what we're, we do very well, and then recessions in the 70s, and then the dawn of the digital age in the 80s, collapse of the Soviet Union kind of ended the interest in foreign news in the 90s. So one challenge after another. And this is good in, in the way that it's forced us to dig deeper. I think we'd be proud of the, of the wave we've dealt with the churn that we have that he didn't have in his more stable period. Even the fact that he was appearing on that radio shows his responsiveness to change. He went from writing print journalism to also giving radio broadcasts and then also appearing on the Monitor's television show. So he also sort of adapted to that in his time. Right. Adapted to changes. Right. Yeah. right. Will the Canlam files eventually be digitized and available online or here at the library? They'll be available on-site in the library. Digitization would be a very expensive and time-consuming process. There is a possibility that a few things might be made available or written about on blogs on the website, but otherwise you'll have to come to the research room to access the materials. As I understand it, Charlotte, um, one of the first steps is to create finding aids to the collection. Is that right? Yes, so currently the collection, we know about it internally, but there's no public access point for it. But part of this project will be creating a finding aid. So basically a research guide that outlines the organization of the collection and what we have on a somewhat detailed level in each box and what subjects are accessible in the collection. So that will provide an access point for you and other researchers to 
have a sense of what they might come here to, to look at inside those boxes. Right. Understanding that you're probably only about a third of the way through the collection, so far from what you've seen, what has been most representative, do you think, of Canem in the collections? And then what's been the most surprising thing that you've discovered? Well, I don't know if this is the most representative or the most surprising, maybe it's both. But in my, I would say in my first month, I was going through a box that had all sorts of unusual objects. And at this point, I wasn't too familiar with Canem. And I came across a one foot long metal spike and it had no tag, it had no label of any kind. <laughs> what is this? And I later learned that Canem's nickname was Spike and all of his journalistic colleagues knew him as Spike and that that nickname was given to him because Canem was so serious and so considerate and such a thoughtful person that they thought he needed a, a rugged nickname like <laughs> Spike. <laughs> that was totally incongruous with his personality. So that was both surprising and very representative. <laughs> Can, can I ask a question? My life would fit into about six boxes. Is, is 350 normal for somebody with that? <laughs> I mean, given, you know, maybe if you printed out all your emails, you'd have something close to that right, these right. days. But um, okay. no, that's definitely even larger than average. Well, thank you so much, Allison. I keep thinking of that British poster when I think of you of keeping calm and... <laughs> carrying on with, uh, with this labor. It's wonderful to get an insight, a vision into your work as manager of records management. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Charlotte, thanks so much for being part of this discussion today and giving us a sense of what's in the collection and how you've come to know Irwin Spike Canham. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Clay, thanks so much for... Um, for bringing your, all your experience and insight into journalism and, and specifically monitor journalism to this discussion. Uh, our tagline for this podcast of Seekers and Scholars is that we exist at the meeting place of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry. And in thinking of Erwin Canham, he really exemplifies bringing in those two, two pursuits in a way that's very specific and really seems to be present in, in all of his work, that there was this spiritual dimension, but then this rigorous, mental, scholarly, journalistic uh, application in terms of dealing with the real world for a real newspaper and dealing with real issues. So we're very, very happy to have been able to talk about Erwin Canham as part of this Seekers and Scholars broadcast and share it with a live audience. Uh, today here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. So thank you for coming. And thank you for all our listeners for joining us in the world of seekers and scholars. Please join us for our next episode of Seekers and Scholars as we invite into studio Sarah Giorgini, author of Household Gods, The Religious Lives of the Adams Family for a follow-up discussion after her author talk at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Of key concern to the Adamses was how to connect their religious faith with the destiny of the United States, the nation they served as political and thought leaders from its inception into the 20th century. As part of our conversation, we will compare and contrast how Mary Baker Eddy responded to the same pressing religious questions 
that preoccupied this first family of New England and the nation. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2019.